Um, there will be one in one of the seats in front of you, and you're more than welcome to use that this morning. If you don't, if you don't own a Bible that you can write in and you can carry around, uh, I would just welcome you to take one of those. Uh, digital versions are great. Uh, but to have one that you can write in, write observations, write questions, all those kind of things, um, that's even greater, and we just encourage you to do that. So if you don't have one, we want to remove that barrier from you, and you just take it uh, and, and use it. That would be wonderful. And Philippians chapter 1 is where we need to be this morning. It, we're going to be walking through the next set of verses that Paul writes in his letter to this church in Philippi. And there's just some incredible things that Paul has to say. And we're going to see that this text really centers around uh, joy and where Paul finds his joy, what his joy perhaps is rooted in, and then what's it focused on. And what's the, the object or what's his focus on in regards to the joy that he has. It's been rightly said, it perhaps is a bit cliche, but it's been rightly said that the secret to joy is to put Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. Um, So there's a kind of an acronym that you could attach to the word joy, but that's exactly what we see in this text. It's exactly what we see in this passage this morning, and what we're going to see even more specifically than as we look at it is that Paul's joy was rooted in God's sovereignty and focused on fruitful labor while longing to be with Jesus. And we're going to see both parts of that, verses 19 and 20, really more 18, 19, a little bit of 20, I should say, is the first section rooted in God's sovereignty. And then the second section is, is really the whole rest of our text this morning together. And what we need to just see is that this text this morning is really a continuation of where Paul left things off last week. So I want to read last week's verses, and I want to just set that up, and then we'll pray, and then we'll hop in to this week, and we'll see how it continues from one to the other. Actually, let's not even go back and just stop at last week. Let's go back before and go to verse 12. So we're going to go two weeks now. And just catch ourselves up to speed, remind ourselves where we've been. And Paul writes, beginning in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that 
I rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray and ask this morning that as we consider what Paul has written about joy, that you would not only allow us to, to learn about him and his circumstances, but to learn from him in these circumstances. God, as he says elsewhere in a letter he wrote to another church, follow me as I follow Christ. God, would you help us to see in these verses this morning an example to follow where we might find joy, where our joy is rooted in, what our joy should be focused on. So God, I pray and, and ask that you would come and, and make sense of your word this morning for us, that we would understand what it is that you have written. We would see how to apply it to our lives, and, and we would be different. We'd be able to approve what is excellent and, and, and be that much more pure and blameless, that much more like Christ. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you would come and meet with us and do so in a way that, that not only changes us as a group, but, but meets with us and changes us individually. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So Paul ends the section we just got done reading with the statement, and in that I rejoice. And then he begins the next section that we'll look at this morning, which is really the second half of verse 18, by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, here's some interesting things that's happening in the text. Okay, so the rejoice that he writes in the beginning part of verse 18, at the end of last week's section, is written in the present tense. So he's saying, look, I am rejoicing, whether in pretense or in truth, I am rejoicing that the gospel is being proclaimed, that Christ is being proclaimed. It doesn't matter if they're preaching it from rivalry or goodwill. I'm just glad and rejoicing that the gospel is being proclaimed. Now, at this point, I think Paul might anticipate a question from the Philippians that he seeks to answer. And I think the question might go a little bit like this, right? where Paul writes, and in that, I rejoice. I think the question is, really? Like, really, Paul? Like, you're going to rejoice despite those circumstances, despite a group of people opposing you, wanting to make your life more miserable than it already is, you're going to rejoice? And then he maybe, and I'm interjecting the question, but then you have perhaps the response, yes, and I will rejoice. Now that second rejoice at the second half of verse 18 is actually a future rejoice, where he's saying, look, this isn't going to end for me. This is going to continue on. The rejoicing happens at present, and it will continue on. So as we think about this, I think it's also important that we, that we don't necessarily equate Paul's proclamation of rejoicing with perhaps him gleefully prancing around the prison cell 
saying, happy, 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 happy. I, I, I'm just not sure that was the case. He is chained to another human being whose sole responsibility is to guard him. He's not a free man. And here perhaps is where you might see some of the differences where happiness is, is something that's, that's cir- circumstantial. It's, it's based on life's circumstances and, and joy is rooted in something completely else. And so his life circumstances, quite frankly, were pretty dire at this point. He had been in jail for at least three years He's now chained to another human being in some type of house arrest scenario. He's providing for his own expenses. People are able to come see him, but he doesn't have freedom. And he is now being opposed by a group of believers in Rome who are running around proclaiming Christ for the purpose of trying to make his life even more miserable. And he's saying to that, you know, I rejoice in that. And I'm going to rejoice continually and forward. And he begins to then give the reasons why. And this first part of Paul's joy being rooted in God's sovereignty is really a a review of where we've already been. So we're not going to think through anything necessarily new here, but he takes his mind and his pen and their minds back to where his roots are. And joy is found. So look then beginning at verse 19 and we'll see it there together. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here Paul is, is, is saying his joy, his future joy, his present joy, his joy that is not going to end is rooted in God's sovereignty. We see that where he writes that this will turn out. That word this is a reference simply to everything that he had written in verses 12 to the beginning part of verse 18. My imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. My opposition or the opposition against me will turn out for my deliverance. We see this taking place. We see that the fact that the gospel has not been silenced. We see the fact that the gospel is actually advancing in ways that it wouldn't have if I wasn't in jail. We see that despite even the opposition from those within the body of Christ who want to make my life more miserable, God is going to do something. God is going to use this in ways that are for his glory and for my good. And the result of that is my deliverance. And Paul says, look, I know this to be true. And I'm going to be strengthened through your prayers and the help or the supply of the Holy Spirit. And it's an important thing that Paul writes there. Now, some of your translations may not have the word help. Some of your translations may use the word supply. That word supply is actually probably a better word there. It's used elsewhere in the Greek language to speak of choir leaders providing all that was needed for their choirs. 
It's just a really interesting word picture when you think about how it's used elsewhere in the Greek language. So the choir needs robes. The choir leader's going to get them robes. They need bottles of water. They're going to get them bottles of water. They need sheet music to read and to sing. He's going to get them the sheet music. And whatever the choir needs to do choir things, the choir leader's going to ensure that that has been well supplied. Here's then what Paul is saying is that through the prayers of the Philippians, the Holy Spirit is going to be supplied in greater measure to him to give him exactly what he needs despite the circumstances he finds himself in to persevere, to be encouraged, to rejoice. So let's just think here, for a minute, because Paul says that the Philippians' prayers are going to cause the Holy Spirit to be supplied to him. So I don't want to miss this, because this is an important theological point here. Paul is not referencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not referencing or referring to, or somehow insinuating or implying that he no longer has the Spirit, but the Philippians are going to pray and the Spirit's going to return. That's not what he's saying here. There's a difference in the New Testament as we think through what the Holy Spirit's role is, what he does, where he is between what we would refer to as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of of the Holy Spirit. I want to define those for you, and I just want to be clear on this point. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the permanent residence of the Holy Spirit in the believer. So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Him for salvation, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't have part of the Spirit. You don't have a little bit of the Spirit. You don't have maybe uh, uh, room for the Spirit to kind of begin occupying more and more of you. You're not waiting for a second blessing of the Spirit. You've got all the Spirit. He's there. He indwells you. You are now the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. He indwells you. Where does He indwell you? I have no idea. I don't know spatially where it takes place. When we refer to it as you know, asking Jesus into our hearts, say that, 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 that's probably okay, but that's not a first century idea. That's a modern century idea. Because we thought about several weeks ago, the, the area of emotions for them were the bowels. So you can maybe understand why we say, you know, have you asked Jesus into your bowels? You know, but that would have been a little bit more in line with what they would have understood. You place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit. You're not waiting for more of the Spirit. You're not waiting somehow for something to get confirmed. You don't get the Spirit when you're baptized You have the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. Jesus Christ comes and takes residence inside of you. And Paul writes in Romans 8, and I believe it's verse 9 or 10, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So to belong to Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ, is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But then there's this thing in the New Testament called the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
And the filling of the Holy Spirit is the ebb and flow of the Holy Spirit's power in the lives of believers. It's the ebb and flow of that. And there is an ebb and flow because it, it largely depends on the prayers of others. And it depends on our obedience to the Lord. Paul would write in Ephesians 4, 18, Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a contrast that he makes there in this letter to the church in Ephesus that, you know, when you get drunk with wine, you're now controlled by wine. Something other than the Holy Spirit is controlling you. You lose some faculties. And I mean, we know more scientifically and biologically what takes place in that scenario than he would have. But the contrast he draws is that when you get drunk with wine, you're no longer able to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's not controlling you because the wine is. And principally, I mean, that can get played out and I think covers all drug use, prescription, and otherwise. What is controlling us? The exhortation is that we be continually controlled by the Holy Spirit. We, and we learn this in Ephesians 4, can grieve the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told that you can quench the Holy Spirit. And these all refer to this filling of the Holy Spirit, this ebb and flow of the Holy Spirit's power in the lives of believers. And I think some of you refer to this at times, but you don't use the theological language for it. Let me describe to you what I mean. If you've ever said, I I felt your prayers, if you've ever said that, I think this is what you're theologically referring to. That through your prayers, I was encouraged and I was strengthened and I found, I found a resolve and a boldness that I didn't know that I had. And, and you know, I, I, I was going to have that conversation with that friend of mine and, and share to them the, with the gospel and I was terrified, but I knew you were praying and then all of a sudden I just felt like I was emboldened to go and do it. And theologically, this is what we're talking about, the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the power to say no to sin, yes to obedience. Quite frankly, I, I pray for this on Sunday mornings, that, that, that the Lord would fill me with the Holy Spirit as I stand before you. That there would be, there would be a power at work, that, that God's Word would be rightly and accurately taught, that we, would, that we would be exhorted and encouraged and equipped, and that God would do that. That this ebb and flow, that He would fill me. I think this is what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about whether or not he has the Spirit or doesn't have the Spirit. He's got all of the Spirit. But he's saying, look, Philippian church, uh, through your prayers... The Spirit has come and He's given me more strength. He's given me more resolve. He's met with me in a special way. And He says, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance in some of your translation is going to say salvation. And that's a much better translation there because Paul is not referring to his release from prison here. He's referring 
referring to the, the day when he is fully and finally saved. He's referring to his eternal salvation. And he's saying, look, all of these things are going to turn out for that. And you can see where Paul's joy is rooted in God's sovereignty. It's rooted in the fact that what God begins, he finishes in Philippians 1.6. It's rooted in the fact that despite all human opposition to the gospel, God is sovereignly using evil to advance his purposes. This is all rooted and geared towards and founded on the fact that God is doing something and God's plans will not be thwarted. And so for him personally, there is joy because God's at work. And this work is going to end in his salvation. He, years before, had written to the church in Rome. Perhaps some of the believers he's now interfacing with as they come and visit him in prison. And had written some of the most famous words I think in the Christian life, and they're found in Romans 8, 28, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and been called according to his purpose. That purpose is to become more like Christ, one day ending in the glorification where we are finally and fully free from sin, sickness, the results of the fall, And we have a glorified body. Jesus has transformed us and our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He's a living example of the words he wrote years prior to this church that now he is imprisoned in. His joy is rooted in God's sovereignty. And then it's focused on fruitful labor while longing to be with Jesus. And we see that begin to pick up then in verse 20 where the lens begins to shift ever so slightly in what he now wants our focus and attention to be on. And he writes, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death, whether I'm released from prison and I still have days to live, or whether Nero decides that it is time for me to no longer have breath, what is my expectation and hope is that Christ will be honored. So his joy is rooted in God's sovereignty that regardless of what happens, there will be a salvation for him because God finishes what he begins, but it's focused on fruitful labor and a longing to be with Jesus. And Paul then moves into some of the most famous words from this chapter in all of the Christian life. We like to put this on a coffee cup or on a bumper sticker, for to me is to live is Christ, but to die is is gain. And he begins to express some of this tension now that he will begin to elaborate on. Let's read through what he then continues to write in verses 22 to 24, and then we'll just think through that in some more detail. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Paul was focused on fruitful labor while still longing to be with Jesus. And the book of Philippians is a book of tension. I don't know if you've picked up on that as we've been walking through it. There's a lot of points of tension even through chapter 1. As we looked at verses 3 to 11, there was tension between God's promise to complete the good work that He began and the command then for us to approve what is excellent so that we might be pure and blameless. There's some tension there. One side, the side that says God will complete the good work that he began, if we don't allow some opposite tension in that, would, would take the position that says, all right, God, do your thing. Come on, I'm, I'm just going to sit here. You come and do it. The opposite side says, hey, God, thanks for that salvation thing. Thanks for the ticket to heaven. I got it from here. I, I, I got the whole be a better person thing now. The, the tension pulls us into balance where because of the salvation we have, we are to grow more and more in Christ-likeness. And there's freedom in the promise that it's not up to us because God is going to finish what He began See, the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And there's a giant distinction between the two of those. We don't earn our salvation. But there is a resounding theme throughout all of the scriptures that there should be effort placed in growing in Christ-likeness, in being able to approve what is excellent, in being pure and blameless. There should be effort there, but that effort happens on the basis and from the foundation that God began our salvation and He has promised to complete it. In verses 12 to 14, we saw that there was tension between what appears to be earthly setbacks and what God is actually sovereignly using to accomplish His purposes. There was tension in verses 15 to 18 between the motives that one preaches the gospel with. Are they from goodwill or are they from envy and selfish ambition and insincerity? There's tension all throughout this chapter and there's tension here between this idea of being with Christ, which is far better, and still being here which he says is far more necessary. If we were to just chart out what he says, here's the big ideas. It's on the screen for you. He says, for me to live is Christ. Now, Paul writing that, he's saying that he's consumed with Christ and Christ alone. See, there's only one reason for which Paul lives. There's only one Lord to which Paul submits. There's only one name that Paul would exalt. There's only one Savior that Paul would trust in. There's only one message that would be proclaimed. And then there's only one law to which he obeys, and it is Christ and Christ alone. So for me to live is Christ is to say the all-consuming passion and desire of my life is for my Lord and Savior. But he gives the tension then. But to die is gain. He says if I keep living, then there's fruitful labor. But if I die, I'm 
going to go be with Christ. He concludes that to die is far better. But in a fascinating counterstatement of putting others and counting others more significant than himself, he concludes it's more necessary for me to be with you. Paul says, look, to die is to gain full and eternal life. It's to have my lowly body transformed to be like his glorious body. It's to be set free from all of sin's suffering and all of the effects of the fall. And he says, look, I'm hard-pressed between the two. That word hard-pressed is the idea of like there's walls closing me in on either side. I mean, we'd have English expressions that would say, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. Being pulled in opposite directions. And he concludes it's more necessary that I'm with you. See, rather than resolving this tension and rather than having uh, the tension for us resolved, I, I would pray that this tension would increase for us. That we would in even greater measure long for heaven but still live for Christ until it's time to go. Paul writes in verse 25 then, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now that word progress there, and if you have a Bible that you write in, you highlight in, it's the same exact word that he used over in verse 12 that is translated advanced or advance. So that word was a nautical word. Remember, it was a word that described a ship making progress on the sea despite violent winds of opposition. We saw in that set of verses that Paul concluded that God was sovereignly using evil to advance his purposes, that it wasn't in spite of the opposition. It wasn't that somehow the gospel found its way around and God managed to breathe a big old sigh of relief and wipe his brow when he found a way through the opposition. No, God was using that opposition to accomplish and advance his purposes. And Paul now uses the same word to speak about the Philippians faith and joy in the faith. Church in Philippi, I know there's opposition to your relationship with Christ. He's going to speak to opponents very soon towards the end of chapter 1. He says, I'm convinced that it's more necessary that I remain with you so that your faith may advance and you may have more joy. See, Paul's joy was rooted in God's sovereignty, and it was focused on fruitful labor. And he concludes in verse 26, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so there's this tension between living for Christ and longing for heaven. And I just wonder, where do you find yourself in the tension? Where do you find yourself in the tension? I I think in some ways we can wrongly just conclude that those who are able to long for heaven 
are those who maybe are by age a little closer to heaven. I think sometimes, and we see it happen, but I think we make a wrong conclusion there. Those who are a little older, a little closer biologically, if, we, if it was all fair and balanced throughout, they, 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 they've had a little bit more loss in their life. They're a little bit more acquainted with grief and sorrow, and they, 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 they're, they're, just, they're just ready to go. And I've talked with, I know some of you are there, and it's not wrong to be there. It's good to be there. I just want to go home. Like, that's where I want to be. Like, this, this has been a good ride. I'm just ready to go be with Jesus. And, and I think, while that is good and right and true, we err if we conclude that you have to be old to live like that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. See, there's a longing for heaven now. And there's just one example of what that might look like. I can long for heaven now with how I use my finances. I can long for heaven now with how I use my time. I can long to lay up for myself treasures in heaven that will not perish or be moth-eaten or will rust will not destroy. I can even now have this focus and attention. It is not an old person thing. It should be the focus of every believer. That this consumes me. I want everything I have to be directed and pointed towards this longing. We want to be a part of things that matter. I've heard people say as they retire, I want to wear out. I don't want to rust out. That's a cool way to say that. You've got a guy that's teaching sixth graders, fifth graders on Wednesday nights who's committed to that. I've heard Pastor Larry say that before. If you've seen in our prayer reminder sheet, you've seen that he's been asked to preach down in Virginia at the Blue Ridge Church all the way now through December. And there's a guy committed to wearing out for the gospel and not content just to sit around and rust out. The longing to make deposits in what matters. And I would just say, if if you are just real honest with yourself and you don't find yourself longing for heaven in that way, Psalm 78 is a great psalm this coming week to spend some time meditating on. In Psalm 78, Asaph speaks to the necessity of teaching about God to the next generation and to the generation not yet born so that those generations will teach to the next generations that are not yet born. I mean, there is this, there is this repetitive cycle of let us pass this on and down and let us be about the things that matter. I'm not sure I long for heaven the way Paul writes about longing for heaven. I'm just 
been honest with you about that before. It's an area I need to grow in. The other aspect of that tension is how we live here and now. Are we living for Christ? Are we seeking to make those investments and deposits into what matters most? The things that moths cannot eat, the things that rust cannot destroy, but the things that will live and endure forever. And, and, and church, we need both. We need, we need both points of, these t- of this tension. We need to grow in our longing to go be with the Lord, and that should translate then in a living for Christ that is birthed out of that longing and reflected in all the different aspects of our daily lives. And to grow in our contentment to living today with the mindset that my life is Christ. And while I still have breath, I'm here to love and to serve and to bless people as if Jesus Christ were here himself. We don't want this tension to be resolved. In many ways, we want it to increase. We're going to be so, so, so captured by the beauty of Christ and, and what, what heaven promises. You find yourself not longing for heaven. Go to Revelation 21 and 22 and, and read about it. And I realize that there's some limitations in our minds. We're bound to think here and now. I mean, we're limited in our ability to understand what this is. And some of it's not even been revealed to us. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians, Eye has not seen, nor ear hear as heard, what the Lord has in store for His people. And so what we have revealed to us is just a little, little glimpse of what will be, and, and we, we just in, in many ways cannot fathom it. But if, if we grew in our longing and desire for Christ, that if, as Asaph writes in Psalm 84, my, my soul longs for you, my, my heart and flesh faint for you, if that translated than the conviction that, well, God, as long as you still give these lungs breath, I'm going to honor you. Whether in death or whether in life, I will seek to honor Christ in my body. That's what we want this tension to be. That all of us might say, God, take me home. Come back. But until you do, we're going to be busy. Paul's joy was rooted in God's sovereignty and it was focused on fruitful labor while longing to be with Jesus. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would increase these things in us. That you would cause within us a a, a growth and and a deeper longing 
Christ. That you would cause within us a, a, a deeper unsettling with what we have here and now. God, God make, us, make us that much more discontent in a holy way with what the world has to offer. God, make, make, our, make our TV sets and our dates at the park and, 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 and hiking and running and, and, and the freedoms that we have now just, just kind of taste a little sour because it's just a foretaste of what you have planned. It doesn't compare with what you have in store for us. And God, I pray that you'd make us just not, not in love with these things. God, as long as you give our lungs breath, may we be committed to wearing out, not rusting out. May we be committed to making investments, to laying up treasures where moths aren't going to eat it and rust won't destroy it. May our lives be shaped and marked by a resolve to honor you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.